let's begin with this. Um, when I was growing up, around the age of 12, my parents got divorced. Anybody in the house, same way? All right, usually it's about half the room. That's about exactly right. My parents got divorced when I was about 12. I was the oldest of three, okay? So uh, during that season, as we were going through those difficulties, I became kind of the man of the house. I was uh, one of two boys in the family, but I was the oldest. So naturally, I take on that role. So I was the firstborn. I was the oldest child. Growing up, I loved sports. Anybody else? Yeah. Usually, again, about half the room. I love sports. Sports were a huge deal for me. I love basketball and football and really anything that I could throw or kick or hit somebody. I loved it. So that was like how I grew up. Sports were everything all the way through high school. And even to this day, I still enjoy to play. Uh, also, though, I was always the life of the party. When I was in school or in groups of friends, I was always the one kind of stirring up trouble and leading people astray and all that great stuff. And I was really good at it. And, and it was just something that I did through many years. And maybe some of you, I won't ask you to raise your hand, but you can identify. Uh, and then later on, I went through some difficult seasons, as we all do. And I made some bad decisions. And through the work of the Lord, he began to get a hold of my life. Uh, now, why do I tell you that? Because here's the thing. There's a, there's a thought I want you to grasp as we think about Exodus, and that is God's providence. God's providence. What does that mean? We know that God is sovereign, that he is above and over all. But God's providence is his hand as he navigates through our lives, as he navigates through the situations in our world. So all those things I just listed to you, those were things I participated in before I truly began to follow Christ. Here's the crazy thing. Through God's providence, God's hand moving through all of those scenarios, every single thing I just listed to you became an asset when the Lord began to use me for his work and for his glory. You go back to my parents being divorced, gives me an opportunity to identify, to talk about things. To this day, I still lead our single parent ministry here at the church. Why? Because there's a connection. I grew up in a single parent home. I've seen both sides. I have some experience. God's been able to use that for ministry. I, I grew up playing sports. That was how I actually began all the ministry here, really generated out of sports and sport leagues, because that's where we found people, and then we used that to recruit people into our ministry. He's been using that all the time, even on Monday nights as I'm schooling all you fools on the basketball court. God made me a firstborn. And firstborn children tend, not always, but tend to be strong leaders. They tend to be fearless. They tend to have high standards, so therefore they tend to set goals and reach goals that most of the other children, don't be sad, it's okay, don't tend to reach. Why? Because the parents set a high standard when we were born. They didn't know what else to do. Usually the firstborns get the worst. God used all of these things to now take those and now use them for ministry, to be able to be the, the life of the party or to be able to rally people and, and get them together and get excited about something. See, God's hand was all throughout my life and all along the way, even when I was making bad decisions, God was getting me ready for what he was going to do down the road. You see that? What we're going to see in Exodus is that same thought come to life. We are going to see the people of Israel go through some difficult times, some turmoil, but all the way through, God's hand, even all the way back in Genesis, is going to be moving them through, and he is using all of this to put them right in the place that he wants them 
to be. Some of you right now maybe are going in some seasons in life or dealing with some areas of your life where you're just going, man, I don't know what is happening. I don't know why this is happening. I don't know what God's trying to do. I don't know where he's trying to take me. I just don't know. And it may very well be that even though we can't quite see clearly yet that God is orchestrating all of this through his providence to lead us to the place he desires for us to be. That's the overarching theme we're going to see as we look at the book of Exodus. Now, let's set up a couple of things. If you want to open your Bibles, if you have one, pull your phone out, look on the screen, whatever you want to do, uh, but open it up, and let's talk about a couple of things to set this up. First, the author is Moses. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. We call that the Pentateuch, okay? These are all of Mosaic authorship, so he is the writer. Now, it is very, very uh, possible and most likely that he had other people physically writing for him at different times, but it is always coming from him. He is always authoring these series of books. And so God is inspiring him through the Holy Spirit to pen this. And so here we go, the book of Exodus written by Moses. Now, the other thing you need to know quickly, the people of Israel are the main focus of Exodus, But if you follow along enough, and maybe even tonight, you're going to begin to go, wait a minute, why do they keep being called all these different names? It's really getting confusing. The people of Israel are also going to be referred to as Hebrews. They'll be referred to as Jews. They'll be referred to as God's chosen people. These are just some of the different names that different people, depending on who's interacting in the story, is going to refer to this group of people. But all of these names, all of these things are connected to the same group of people. This is the people of Israel. That makes sense? All right. So there's your introduction. Now we can begin. All right. So verse one. It's all right. That's the third one. Don't worry about it. It's all good. One thing I didn't think about. Brooms, yes, broken glass. And the other thing is, once you set it down, it's over because they all look the same. So anyways, it's all good. Don't worry about it, no worries. Okay, verse one, chapter one, here we go. Let's read a couple verses. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Ezekar, Zebulon, Benjamin, Dan, Nephtali, Gad, and Asher, All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now, this is awesome. Man, when you read that, you go, that was fascinating. That was the most exciting thing I might have read in a long time, right? (laughs) Maybe not. If you don't understand the story. See, Exodus starts in the original language with the word and. And. Why? Why? Because we go from Genesis into Exodus. Now, there's a gap, but as far as our writing goes, we are connecting the dots. And so we have to understand a little bit about Genesis so that we can set up more about what's happening in Exodus. Now, how many of you remember Joseph? Anybody remember Joseph? Not Joseph, Jesus' father, but the other Joseph. Joseph that was sold into slavery. We'll talk about all that in a second. This is the story of him and his brothers. This is going all the way back even to Abraham. So let's look at this just very, very quickly as we take the extension into Exodus. First, there was a very important section of scriptures in Genesis called the Abrahamic Covenant. Let me read to you just a couple of these verses. You can just listen. It won't be on the screen. Genesis 15, 13 through 16, if you want to just jot this down. Then the Lord said to Abram, who will later be called Abraham, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. And they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. 
but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. What's happening? God is telling Abraham what's going to happen in Exodus. He is saying, do y'all remember Abraham? God told Abraham that you're going to be the father of many nations. He was like 90 years old. And they actually laughed at him. He and his wife, well, Sarah laughed. No offense. That was my wife's name too, by the way, but that's okay. Not connected at all. That's not why she was named after, for that part at least. They laughed at him. How are we going to be the father of many nations if we're 90 years old? This doesn't seem possible. Yet God had a plan all along, and he is going to exactly do that. From Abraham, Abraham's going to have a son. That son's going to be named Isaac. Then Isaac's going to do some silly things. Actually, if you remember Isaac, Abraham's going to be called to take him up on a mountaintop, take him all the way to the edge of death to prove his trustworthiness with God. Then from Isaac, Isaac's going to have some kids From Isaac, we're going to go into Jacob. And then from Jacob, we're going to go into Joseph. So we begin to see the connections as they're panning through. This is the story of this family, generation after generation, unfolding. Now, if you remember with Joseph, uh, Joseph went through a couple of things. Joseph was his favorite by his father, first of all. Then he was sold into slavery by his brothers who hated him. Y'all remember this story? Then while he was in slavery, what happened? Well, he served the Lord faithfully, and he worked his way up. He became head of the household. And then he had an issue with a woman, couldn't couldn't get away from it. She accused him of raping her, even though he wanted nothing to do with her. And then guess what he was? He was thrown into jail. But then while in jail, one of his roommates, or cellmates, we'll change the name for him, roommates, had a dream, and he had no idea what the dream meant. So Joseph, inspired by God, was able to interpret this dream. And he said, hey, I'm going to do this for you, but I just hope you'll remember me down the road. Maybe you can come back and help me get out. Well, the dude forgot him. So years later, he's serving in the king's court. And then the king has a dream and no one can interpret it. So guess what? This man remembers, oh, there was a guy back in jail named Joseph. Maybe we should ask him. So they bring Joseph. Joseph interprets the dream and he becomes eventually prime minister of the entire land. And then God gives him a vision and says, there's going to be seven years of plenty, seven years of everything going wonderfully. We're going to have excess of our our produce. It's going to be fantastic. But then there's going to be seven years of famine. And so during this first seven years, we're going to prepare so that we can make it through the seven years. Now, listen, this is the key. Because Joseph was positioned in this place with that vision from God, not only did he save the people in that area, but he saved all the people in the surrounding areas, including his family. And you may remember that later on, his brothers are actually gonna come down and they're gonna stand face to face and have no idea it was him. See, God's providence all the way through. Listen, don't miss this. The life of Joseph is not about a bunch of life lessons for you and I. That's just an extra on top of the cake. The life of Joseph is about one thing. It is about helping the people of Israel be able to live through a famine so that God's promise to Abraham could be fulfilled. We begin to see all the way through the scriptures and all the way through the lives of these men and to connect it into you all the way through your life, all the things that we are experiencing and going through are a possibility for God to use through his providence because he sees things, he sees things that we could never see. And so we pick up 
that Joseph is already in Egypt. Why? He's been promoted to the head of Egypt. Let's continue on. Then Joseph died, and all of his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. When it says they multiplied, do we understand what that means? Okay, half of the room didn't. So for them, y'all are good, but a little help. They had babies. They had babies and babies and babies. Listen, they started with 70 when they got here. By the end, there's, it's only an estimate. We can only get so close. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 2.5 to 3.5 million people are going to be a part of this exodus. That's a lot of babies. That's a lot of babies. So they're fruitful. They're multiplying. Just like God promised, there's going to be a building up of these people. They're going to develop. They're going to grow. But all along the way, Something is happening. There's a threat beginning to develop. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. So remember, Joseph was prime minister. He'd passed away. That time had gone by. And now a new king comes and he probably just didn't want to acknowledge it. But he's not worried about helping these people out anymore. He's not worried about any kind of extension to Joseph. And he begins to look around and he goes, man, we're outnumbered. There's more of them than there are of us in our royal court. There's, we, we got some problems here. What if they were to rise up against us? This could be a problem. And so this king begins to get nervous. He begins to get anxious. Why? Because he's worried that he might lose control. It was all about control back then. He wanted to be in charge, and he didn't want anything to get in the way of this. And so he begins to look out at all of these people as they're growing and as they're multiplying, and he's going, man, there's so many of them. This could potentially be dangerous. So what's going to happen? Well, his pride is going to get in the way. See, the Egyptians had a real issue. They It was all about their race and their race alone. Anyone from an outside race was was not accepted. It was not a good thing. They had racial superiority, period. And so the fact that these others were growing was a real problem. So what's he going to do? Well, he's going to create a three-step plan to try to get rid of them. Let's look at the first part, plan number one. He's going to make the Hebrews toil in hard labor. Verse 10, here's his words, come. Let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out and they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land, therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad." Now, a couple things. First, Pharaoh is a, is a name for a king that's interchangeable like we use president. President is connected to many different people, but it's an office that you hold at the time. So when we say Pharaoh, we're talking about the king. Just something for you to understand there. Now, here's what happens. When people are in the midst of oppression, this kind of oppression, this is really genocide 101. They are, their plan is to make them fear them with the authority and the power 
make them toil and work. They're going to fear them. Then they're going to weaken them by making them work so hard that they just want to give up. And then finally, they're going to kill them. That's the plan that he's trying to instill. So the first part is to instill fear. So here's this Pharaoh stepping into place. And as all of this oppression, all of these, these things are happening, as they're working as, as slave drivers, basically, there's a picture that they found on one of the tombs back in ancient times. And they saw that one of the pictures that was drawn showed that these taskmasters actually walked around with whips. And they would just whip the Israelite people or the Hebrews as they were working to make them work harder. So this is the kind of oppression that they were experiencing. And when you're oppressed... Most of the time, you're not happy. There's not joy. There's not a thought of multiplying. There's not a thought of looking forward. There's just a thought of sitting in our mess and looking around going, I can't believe this is happening. Why is this happening? I thought we were God's chosen people. Why is he letting this happen? It makes me think of a, a, a commercial at the Super Bowl that I saw one time. Maybe you remember this. I think they had one this year. But it's a picture of Super Bowl babies. Did y'all ever see this? You know what I'm talking about? When the team, when their team, their hometown won the Super Bowl, right, multiplication tended to happen. You get the drift? Do you get the drift? There's just a joyful excitement because why? When things are good, that's the thought that happens. We want to join together. We want to do all these things. But when your team loses, there's not as many Super Bowl babies. That when you're oppressed, when you're in difficult times, you're just not thinking about these things. Yet the people of God are doing the complete opposite of what makes sense. That even in the midst of their oppression, they are growing, they are expanding, they are multiplying. This is an interesting thought. So many times we catch ourselves, maybe you do this, I know I have, we complain about the world we live in. Oh, this world's jacked up from the floor up. This place is messed up. I don't want anything. I don't, maybe I don't want to even have kids because my kids are going to have to grow up on this. I'm still growing up in this. This is crazy. I don't, and you know what the truth is? The people of Israel are a good model for us. What if Christians, not yet, get married first. Don't misinterpret this. But once you're married, what if Christians just start having babies? And raised their babies up in God-fearing homes and taught them the things that mattered so that when they go out into the world, they might make an impact for the kingdom. The king was worried about that very thing, that as they grew, they might outnumber. What if the Christians begin to have a new, and I'm not saying this is what should happen. Don't go out on the internet and say Chad started some new revolution. That's not what I'm trying to say. But you get the picture. What if we took that part seriously? In Psalms, it tells us that a child is like an arrow in your quiver. Quiver is where you hold your arrows if you were using a bow and arrow. And it's a blessing, and they're to be shot out into the world to bring glory to God and to impact the world. What if we took that approach? Something for you to think about in the years to come, not before, just to be clear. But the very thing he was worried about might be something for us to think about. The other thing we have to stop and think about for a moment is not all of our difficult times are discipline. Now, don't be fooled. When we make mistakes, I can attest to this many times throughout my life. God has allowed discipline to happen to me so that I might learn and I might move back on the path of what he desires for me to do. But sometimes we go through difficult things as a part of the process. It's a part of the growing process. It's a part of the developing 
process. And as Christians, when we look at the Bible, that shouldn't surprise us because all throughout the scriptures, it, the scriptures, it's hard to find a person of God that did something miraculous that had to go through just perfect circumstances. There's always some kind of trouble, some kind of challenge they had to work through to get to that place. Don't be fooled if you look around and go, why is life so hard? It's probably because you're right where you need to be or you did something really bad and you're being disciplined. It could go either way. But the reality is we have to understand this because these people, they weren't perfect, but they weren't doing anything wrong. But rather they were a part of that God's providential hand moving through history and moving through their particular situations to propel them right where he desired for them to be. How many of you work out? I never just raise your hand so we don't, yeah, like, yeah, me too. I do that too. You walked here, you're good. I remember uh, January 1st of last year, my wife and I decided, hey, man, we're going to start working out again. We're going to, like, get serious about this thing. And so we went to the gym on January 1st at 7 a.m. Yeah, take that, chumps. All y'all were sleeping. We got serious. But I'm going to tell you what. When we started, there was no seriousness about it. I just wanted to get out. I wanted to, in fact, they, told, they reminded me on our one-year anniversary to have fun with that. They were reminding us that. Um, I was trying to get out the door when the, the little class thing was over because I just wanted to get out of here. And Sarah was like, why don't we sign up now? And I'm like, oh, let's sign up later. And they were like, no, sign up now. And they were right because if I'd made it out that door, I wasn't coming back. It wasn't going to happen. I was done. But the, real, the reality is we got in there, we got started, and I'll tell you what, it hurt, it hurt, it was painful, it wasn't fun, but that's how you know you're doing it right. And then down the road, all of a sudden, I look like a mom. I'm just kidding. But you get the picture. It was a joke. Sometimes, though, the things you're going through are not discipline, but rather part of the process, building us up, getting us ready for what God has in store for us. And this is the people of Israel in this situation. They're a perfect example of this. Verse 12, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves they made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. The brick and mortar is uh, just an interesting side note for you to know. That would be what they built most of their architecture in. That was the normal thing. Only would it be for palaces or temples would they use any kind of stone or something special like that. But what was happening, they were being they were trying to be weakened. They were trying to work them so hard that they might gain control. This is his plan. But the plan isn't working because they're multiplying and they're growing. The opposite effect is taking place. So now he moves into his second part, and this is where it gets a little serious. He, he asks all of the midwives to kill all Hebrew babies. Let's look at this passage, verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew wives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pooh. When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. That's kind of intense. That's really intense. He can't oppress them. It's not working that way. So let's try a second step. Let's take it one step further. So he says to a midwife, you know what a midwife is? It's typically a woman, 
that steps in and helps at labor or helps at delivery, okay? And so they, they could have been of Hebrew descent. They could have been of Egyptian descent. There's not 100%. They kind of go both ways. Most likely, though, they were of Hebrew descent just given how they responded to this situation. But it's irrelevant. It doesn't matter. Here are these women, and the king comes to them. Now, remember, when the king asks you to do something, there's weight to that. There's power to that. There's the threat of your life to that. You don't get to just say no and walk away and everything's okay. And so he comes to the midwives, and he says, listen, I want you to kill all of the baby boys. And now when you begin to stop and think about that, you go, how, how did that work? Well, I mean, were they born and then they killed them in front of the mom? How did they do it? Well, what they tried to do was to kill them as they were coming out of the womb. So that way it would look like a still birth. That's when the baby's already dead, but it still comes out. So we call a still birth. And so that was their goal. Sometimes they would strangle the baby, whatever it would take, but they would kill that baby before it got out. Now, here's the thing. That sounds sick, doesn't it? Right? You just say yes, so I feel better. Yes, that sounds sick. Yes. Here's what's crazy. Do you know that in America, for a long time, we had partial abortions? Did you know that? We would kill babies as they were halfway out of the womb. Here's another symbolism, and not to go too crazy with this, but the symbolism here of the midwives are pretty close to what we would call an abortion clinic. Isn't it wild that we can look at something and say, why or how could they do that? Yet we can look up and realize that, oh wow, we're following right in suit as they were so many years ago. Why the boys? In, each, in ancient Easterns, uh, eastern areas, the males were the ones that would lead the nation. So if you could get rid of the males, essentially you could get rid of a nation. Or you could get rid of the part of a nation that could take that nation places. They didn't care about the girls. Most likely, most likely, let's not get crazy here, but most likely the king just wanted to keep them around because they'd be great for his harem later on. See the genocide taking place? Does it sound familiar to certain things we've experienced in our history as humans? Yeah, isn't it amazing how we follow suit? How sad. Verse 17. But the midwives feared God, and they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. Praise the Lord. But they let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong because the midwives feared God and he gave them families. Okay, there's a lot here. Number one, first thing, Pharaoh approaches them and what do they say? Well, the truth is we don't know if what they said was a lie or a half truth or the truth. It is possible that God, again, in his providential plan, intervened to help them. And so these babies were coming out before they even had a chance to make it there to help at delivery, right? Have you ever heard of that? Maybe your parents, maybe you were born in a car somewhere because they couldn't make it. I don't know. Maybe that was you. Tell us later. I heard a story. Never mind. I don't have time for a story. I heard a good story. Ask me later. I'll tell you. But maybe that's possible. And they said they were vigorous. Well, remember, the Hebrews were what? They were working hard as slaves, 
All of them were participating in that. So it's possible that they were just in good shape. I don't know if there's a connection to that, but that somehow that was happening. And so that was their argument. Now, the reality is if they were lying or telling a half truth or telling the whole truth, we can't get too caught up in that. We're looking at the big picture of how God operated. Now, I believe they were of Hebrew descent, okay? And I'm, I am gonna just go under the whim that God was in complete control in this situation and helped to protect them because they honored him. And so I'm gonna believe that what they said happened, happened. But regardless, it's the bigger picture of the situation. These women feared God more than they feared man. These women were willing to stand up to a king who, remember what he was just asking them to do? He had no regard for human life whatsoever. He could have killed them himself on the spot if he wanted to, and he would have felt no way about it. This is the kind of king that they were working under. The fact that they were willing to step up and stand toe-to-toe to him and tell him essentially no by disobeying him. These women were brave. Here's another interesting thought. This is just kind of fun. Maybe Amanda will appreciate this because she loves names in scripture. These two women are named. Did you notice that? You know that almost all, maybe all, I'm not gonna say that because I'm not hundred sure, almost all of the pharaohs, you never actually know what their name is. Some of them had great power. Some of them built great dynasties, yet these two women who essentially, if you think about it, were working in a corner on a small little side ministry just delivering babies get named in the word of God in a few seconds as we're reading in a few seconds of history. Here's something to think about. Not everyone is gonna be called to stand in front of a a ministry and to teach. Some of us, some of you are gonna be called to serve behind the scenes when maybe nobody's looking, but I just want you to know when you stand before God, those rewards are gonna be greater than you can ever imagine because he doesn't worry about the size of the call. His focus is that you would be faithful to follow the call he's placed on your life. Don't get so caught up in trying to do something big and great. That's the problem with our generation. We're so focused on something great that we miss doing the simple things that get us to a place to maybe accomplish something great. It starts with those small steps and everything else builds from that. Maybe that's just a small principle we can pull from these two women. How fascinating. Their moment in scripture, we're talking about them years later. But the bravery of these two women to stand up against this king. Here's the final piece. That plan didn't work. The midwives didn't follow. God honored the midwives. By the way, it says he took care of them. He gave them families. Most of the time, the midwives operated in that profession just because they didn't have kids. Here's the last piece. Verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, everyone, every son that is born to the Hebrews You shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Pharaoh says, okay, the midwives weren't getting it done, so let's bring in an army of people. All of his subjects, anyone that worked for him, they were now all called into the game. What was their job? If they were to find a baby boy, they were to what? Throw him into the Nile. I thought we were going to have like some happy time here. This is dark. Throw them in the Nile. Now there might have, there probably was some kind of worshipable ritual connection for the Egyptian people and all the craziness that they followed. But the reality is this is, again, genocide. What was the first part? He wanted to fear them. 
He wanted them to fear those people, but it didn't work. He wanted to weaken them, but it didn't work. So what did he result to? He wants to kill them. Now that's where we'll stop for tonight. And it'll set us up for, guess what? An incredible story of how a little baby named Moses is going to come to life and be the star of the next few weeks of this study. Now, what do we need to see from this? Number one, this is the main thing. God is working. Again, it is so difficult to look through the scriptures and find a man or a woman that did something incredible for God that didn't have to overcome some kind of challenge. If you're going through some difficult stuff, it's quite possible that God has you right where he wants you. I've told you all many times before, I'll give you just a snapshot of this. The other part of of my story was uh, a moment that I had when I really injured my knee. And that was what stopped me from pursuing one thing, permanently placed me in Houston, woohoo, permitted me from no longer going away. But yet by doing that, God was able to position me into a place and into a home, my father's home. I grew up in my mom's, but in my father's home, that would open the door for me to renew my relationship with Christ so that then God could take all of those things that I was using for not good or negative impact and he could flip those upside down and begin to use them for his glory. And I just wonder for you tonight, how many of us are here and we're looking around trying to figure all this stuff out and maybe we're just missing that this is exactly the season that God has us in. Some of you are like, I just want to find someone. I just want to date someone. Or more I just want to get married. Maybe this is exactly the season that God has you in so that he can prepare you for that next step. Some of you are looking for a job or you're trying to find that career or that purpose and you just, you want to figure it out and that's wonderful and I encourage you to pursue it because this is the time. But maybe there's some stuff that he's got to work on so that he can get you to that place. And maybe some of you are going, I actually find myself having uh, some time. I have a lot of time. I have some free time. I have some different, different things that have now opened up on my schedule or maybe in my life. And maybe it's quite possible that God wants to use some of that to do some different things in your life so that, again, he can begin to prepare you or continue preparing you for what's next. God will always have a much bigger picture of our lives than we could ever imagine. The best thing we could do is embrace the situations we're in to begin walking toward him and trust that he will navigate us where he desires for us to go. And here's the thing, guys. Listen to this. The longer you're alive and the stronger you become as a Christian and as a believer, guess what? These challenges don't stop. God is going to prepare you, groom you, develop you, mold you, break you until the day that you die so that you can be the best you can be, the best picture of Christ you can be in your life. And every day you're going to grow more and more. And some of you are like, man, I feel good because I feel like I'm close with the Lord and I know a lot of things about the Bible or or I'm getting there. And I just want to tell you, guess what? You do that for the next 20, 30 years, you're going to be in places you never dreamed before. It's going to be incredible, but every day 
every single day is going to be a journey as God is working in our lives. I just encourage you as you leave here tonight to begin thinking about this. Think about what God is doing in your world. Think about what he's working. Think about maybe what he's trying to stop you from right now. Maybe some of you are beginning to pursue something, you don't even realize it, but it is going to take you down a path you don't want to go, and now is an opportunity for you to stop. There's so many ways that God could be working, and we just have to kind of lay that up in front of you and trust that God will do that. So I just encourage you to take some time tonight to think about that, to pray about that, ask the Lord maybe to give you just a little glimpse of what he's doing in your life.